Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. Amen. Those of you who have your Bibles here, you're welcome to open with me in 1 Kings 19. I'm busy with a, a series preaching through um, 1 Kings and the life of Elijah specifically. And I've really enjoyed it so much. Um, you know, when, when, you, when you read the scripture and you discover that there's more in there than you thought. It's richer than you thought. It's more powerful, more relevant than you thought. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm just getting, as I'm uh, doing this series, I'm just getting a new respect for the Old Testament and realizing, you know, sometimes we as Christians tend to focus uh, almost exclusively on the New Testament and neglect the Old Testament a bit. Um, but we, we, we are the ones that lose if we do that because there's so much more, so much more in God's Word, even in the Old Testament than we realize. It's, it's God-inspired Word. And what I like about Elijah, I mean, if you, if you want to, this is the seventh um, installment in the series, so you can go and go back and go and download the podcasts or, or, the, or the sermons um, if you want to catch up and if you missed any of them because I've preached some of them here and some of them in in Santon, so um, if you if you only attend the morning service, you, you will have definitely missed a couple. Um, what has happened was um, there's been this drought and there's been this um, confrontation, and the drought has come as a judgment on Israel because Israel has not been faithful to Yahweh. They've turned to Baal. Uh, Ahab, the king, and Jezebel, his, his Sidonian wife, have basically institutionalized Baal worship and converted almost all of Israel to Baal worship. And, and the climax that we got to um, at one stage was the famous firefight on, firefight on Mount Carmel, you know, where um, you know, you, you, to understand what, what's going on, you have to understand that, that Baal was called the rider on the clouds. He's, just, he's the storm god, the, the bringer of the rain. So, so rain and thunder and lightning are, you know, fire and rain are what's identified with him. And now, um, what I like about Elijah is, Elijah is like us. You know, I can really relate to Elijah, you know, because if I were in this circumstance, in this situation, I, I would also want to do what Elijah did, you know. Okay, let's, you say Baal is God, I say Yahweh is God, let's, let's do it out. I'll, I'll, I'll go and rent, you know, um, Wanderers or, or, or one of the stadiums, you know, um, Alice Park, and say, okay, let's, let's, let's have a big showdown between our gods. Let's call fire down from heaven. See whose God is, is the winner, you know. <laughs> I don't know if I'd, I don't have the guts to do that, but, but I'd like to think in my best moments, I'd, <laughs> I'd want to do that as well, you know. Um, and um, the amazing thing is Elijah does that, you know. They build the two altars, and, you know, the 450 Baal prophets... You know, try and call down fire from morning till afternoon. Nothing happens. Eventually, Elijah starts mocking them and taunting them. You know, I think I'd do that as well, you know, <laughs> at least a little bit, you know. So I can relate to Elijah. And, and the amazing thing is fire comes down from him and it doesn't only consume the sacrifice. It consumes the wood, the stones of the altar, um, the, the water that has been poured out on it and the water in the trench around the altar and the ground, you know, like a... And this is not just lightning. I don't think lightning... I think lightning can maybe burn a, a sacrifice in the wood, um, even if it's wet. Well, I don't know if, if, if it's wet. But the stones and the ground? 
You know, this is like serious miracle, you know. So much so that people fall down and say, the Lord, Yahweh, He is God. The Lord, He is God, you know. And then, you know, even worse, or even better, you know, Elijah sends Ahab off. He says, go and eat and drink, you know. In other words, the, 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 the drought's going to be broken, you know, so you can eat and drink. That's what you don't do in a drought, you know. When there's no water, no food, you don't eat and drink so much. You ration. Okay, he says, go and eat and drink, you know, because the drought's going to be broken, you know. And I hear the sound of heavy rain. And then he goes up the mountain and he prays and the rain comes. Like the sky turns dark with clouds and the rain comes, you know. So now, then he, in the spirit of the Lord, in the power of the Lord, with the hand of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord upon him, he runs 27 kilometers not on tarred roads or even gravel roads, cross country, ahead of, 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 of um, Ahab's chariot for 27 kilometers from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, which is where, uh, uh, it wasn't the capital, but um, as far as I know, I think Samaria was the capital, but, but um, Ahab and, and, and Jezebel had a, a, um, a, a palace there, so it was one of their main places. Uh, where, so I mean, that, that's where all the enemies, that's where Jezebel is who wants to kill him and who has killed all the Lord's prophets, except the hundred that, that um, Obadiah hid in a cave. Um, so why would you go to where the enemy is? So he's running ahead of this chariot, you know, 27 kilometers in the power of the Lord. Now he's, you know, he, he tucked his, his, he pulled up his, girded his loins, you know, pulled up his robe, tucked it into his, and he was running, you know. And he didn't have Nike Airs, you know, he had like sandals, cross country. 27 kilometers outrunning a chariot. That's like serious. Now, so it's the fire, it's the rain, it's the outrunning the chariot. And the reason obviously he goes to the heart of where the enemy is is because he thinks the battle's won. He thinks this is it, you know. I've done it, you know. I've won the battle. All of Israel's going to convert. Even Ahab and Jezebel are going to convert or at least be overthrown by the people. The victory has been won. You know, I think he's feeling very confident right now. You know, the power of the Lord, the fire, the rain, the outrunning the chariot, the, the Lord is with him, the hand of the Lord is upon him, he's the man. And then Jezebel sends him a messenger with a threat, I'm going to kill you. And all of a sudden he falls apart and he runs for his life. And he ends up under a broom tree wanting to die. I can relate with that. <laughs> This is a real guy, and he really has faith in the Lord, but he's also really human and weak. And sometimes he falls apart. You know, so so he's and, and and you know when I read this passage, and we're going to read it in a moment, I I see so much on the one hand strength and faith in God, but ironically also so much weakness and doubt and just plain sin, you know, and bad attitude as well. You know, and I can relate with that because even though I love God and, and I have faith in God, I often let God down as well, just like Elijah. So we're going to look at, at this. At one stage in, in this um, passage, you'll see it. The angel of the Lord appears to, to, to Elijah and he says to him, the journey is too much for you. Because Elijah had said, I've had enough. I want to die. You know, just want to die. Just take my life. Um, and the angel of the Lord says to him, the journey is too much for you. And if life is a journey, the reality is sometimes the journey is too much for us too. Just like it was for Elijah. And a lot of the things that Elijah needed on his journey, which was too much for him, we need on our journeys, which are often too much for us. 
So let's look at that. Um, Let's read 1 Kings 19. I'm going to read verse 1 to 13 and then verse um, 18. So it says, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets uh, with a sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them, like one of the prophets that you killed. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, that's right at the southern tip of Judah, um, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert south, you know, into the desert, out of Israel, down into the desert to the south. Uh, day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up. And ate and drank, strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, Horeb, the mountain of God. That's very important, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. And the Lord said, Go out, stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, uh, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Just imagine how strong a wind must be to shatter rocks. This must be like the most serious hurricane you've ever seen in your life. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. The King James says, a still small voice. Then when Elijah heard it, he put his cloak over his head, over his face, sorry, and went out and stood At the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And then God just talks about how Elijah replies exactly the same as before, and God just says how he's going to say, how he sends Elijah, basically recommissions him, sends him to go and anoint three people. Um, If you want to hear more about that, you're going to have to come and and listen tonight because there are a lot of things in here I, I can't deal with now. So this evening or this afternoon at 5 and, and Santon, I'm going to continue on that. But then at the end, he says in verse 18, Yet I, have, yet I reserved 7,000 in Israel, all, those, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouth have not kissed him. So Father God, we just want to thank you for your word. That is living and powerful, Lord God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here. Thank you for the testimonies we've heard, Lord God, of how, Lord, even in our weakness, even in our despair, 
you take care of us, just like you did for Elijah. And please teach us from this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this passage teaches us um, a couple of things. I just want to highlight three things. Why we so often get discouraged during the, the journey. How we need grace during the journey. And then how we need grace at the end of the journey. Okay? Um, and and it's, it's interesting. This, is sort of, this passage is sort of in three um, stages or acts. Three acts. The first act is in Jezreel where Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah to threaten him. And he runs away. The second act is down in the desert, south of Israel, outside of Israel, to the south, where the Lord sends a messenger, because the word angel literally means messenger, where the Lord sends a messenger to help Elijah. And the third act is in the cave in Mount Horeb, some of you might not recognize that name. Its better known name is Mount Sinai. Remember where Moses had a similar encounter with the Lord? And where God sends Elijah as a messenger and recommissions him in his calling. Okay? So those, those three acts. We're just going to look at those three things. Firstly, why we get discouraged during the journey. And, and I know if, if you've been walking with the Lord uh, for any amount of time, you know discouragement. You know discouragement. Even if you haven't been walking with the Lord, even if you're still sort of on the fence and you're still trying to decide whether you want to become a Christian or not, you still know discouragement. Life can be very discouraging. Life can get to you sometimes. Life can be too much, like Elijah says. It's, I've had enough. Many of, most of us, in fact, I'm sure all of us, if you've been living long enough, you've come to that place where you just say, I've had enough. I can't take this anymore. I've had enough. Um, but often, it's our wrong expectations, our wrong beliefs, our wrong behavior, our wrong understandings that conspire together to discourage us. You know? So just a few things I want to highlight here. Elijah had clearly um, had a massive victory. And he had seen spectacular fire come down from heaven. You know, Rain come down. Uh, you know, and after the fire, there could be no doubt who was sending the rain, you know. It, 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 Baal might be the storm god, you know, the bringer of the rain. But it was very clear that it was Yahweh that was bringing the rain. That was what the, the firefight on Mount Carmel was all about. And, you know, he'd outrun the chariot. So, so he, he had a, a, a really spectacular victory. And, and he'd seen spectacular miracles. And he clearly was expecting a massive reformation to come. So he comes to Jezreel, runs right, boldly, in front, ahead of Ahab's chariot, into Jezreel, into the enemy camp, as it were. Because he's expecting victory. He's expecting everyone to surrender. He's expecting there to be massive reforms, even Ahab and um, Jezebel, to either convert or to be overthrown. And Jezebel says, May the gods, not the God Yahweh, the gods, plural, deal with me ever so severely. If I don't kill you, make by this time tomorrow. In other words, not only has she not converted, she has no intention of converting. She has every intention of killing Ahab and of killing Elijah. And she's done it before. She's been slaughtering the prophets of Yahweh all along. So this is no idle threat. I mean, Elijah probably was thinking, you know, I would have at least liked 
a few, you know, protesters, you know, out there, like saying with placards saying, we want Yahweh back, you know, away with Baal, we want Yahweh back. Nothing of the kind. When the fire came down on Mount Carmel, they all fell down and said, the Lord, he's God, the Lord, he's God. But where are they now? Where are they now? It seems like he's won this great victory. He's done his best. His plan has worked to perfection, better than expected, and yet evil remains. What now? You see, so often we expect, when spectacular things happen, we expect that people will, it'll change people's hearts. The reality is the spectacular, good though it is, doesn't always change people's hearts. It wasn't like that in Elijah's ministry. It wasn't even like that in Jesus' ministry. If you go and read in, in, um, in, uh, in fact, let me read you just one of those scriptures in, in John uh, chapter 12. We see this in, in Jesus' ministry. Um, in verse 28, it's, it says, uh, Jesus says, Father, glorify yourself. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And Jesus had been doing miracles, and here the voice of God the Father thunders from heaven. And the people hear it. And then in verse 37 it says, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in, the, in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Ish. Miracles are good and necessarily and important. God does miracles. Today, as in Jesus' day and as in Elijah's day, he does miracles. But miracles don't necessarily change people's hearts. You see, we have the wrong expectation, just like Elijah. We expect the miraculous to change people's hearts. And they don't always. They might sometimes open people's hearts, but they don't change people's hearts. Um, so even after this massive victory and the spectacular miraculous victory, you know, um, evil still remains, which means this is not, this what Elijah expected to be the decisive victory in the life of Israel and lead to deep reform of Israel. This was not the decisive victory. But what then is? And how? If God's not going to necessarily do it through the spectacular, how is he going to accomplish this? So um, that, that's one of the thing, things. In other words, the, one of the problems was that Elijah had the wrong expectation. He had his plan and his, what he thought, how he thought God was going to do it. How he thought, in fact, God was supposed to do it. And so often, we have all these expectations of God. And God doesn't end up doing it the way we want him to. We have the wrong expectation, and then we're disappointed. But not only that, I'm, I'm sure Elijah was just plain, he had the wrong expectation, but, but I think he was just plain tired and fatigued as well. I don't know, I mean, it, there's been a drought and so on, and he, he was provided for in the widow's house, the widow of Zarephath, but then he left and he came to confront Ahab and Israel on Mount Carmel. I don't know how much he ate, but, you know, th th that showdown was the whole day, at least, on Mount Carmel. And, and I'm sure he'd been praying the previous night. <laughs> I mean, you don't do something like that, then you don't pray. So I don't think he's been sleeping much either. And then he sends Ahab to go and eat and drink, but he goes up the mountain to pray for rain. And then he does rain, so he didn't eat and drink. And then... In that, with the hand of the Lord upon him, he out, outruns the chariot. So, I mean, that's physical exertion. I mean, even in the power of the Spirit. So he, he must be tired. And just physically drained. 
His blood sugar must be low. He must be dehydrated. He must be fatigued. <laughs> but not only that, he felt lonely. Later on he says, I'm the only one left. He, he said it on, on Mount Carmel to, to the Israelites, but then he says it twice to God as well. You know, all of Israel has deserted you. My people, you know, your people have deserted you. I'm the only one left. He feels lonely. God shows him later on that he's wrong about that. But he feels lonely. He feels isolated. And, you know, I, I think, and, and, and this is where I can, you know, um, relate to Elijah because he's not, he's far from perfect. You see a bit of self-centeredness, you know, of self-importance and of self-pity there. He thinks he's a bit more important than he really is and he, and he, and he feels very sorry for himself. Um, and, and, and we often do that. We often do that. Let's be honest with ourselves. Don't, don't nudge your neighbor now. Now this is, this is now where we have to be honest with ourselves, right? We often, when things are going wrong, we feel bad, we feel sorry for ourselves. And without necessarily articulating it, the, the assumption is that we're more important than we really are. You know, that, you know, life really revolves around us. I, I once heard a famous writer say, if you want to write believable characters, write the characters as though they were the center of their universe. Because that's how all people are, according to this very famous writer. You know? And it, and it, and it rings too. But the problem is that self-importance, that self-pity causes us to judge incorrectly. Only Jezebel threatened him. What does he say to God on the mountain? They are trying to kill me. So one queen, Jezebel, all of a sudden became they. And we inflate our problems. We inflate our problems. So he, he was lonely and he, he felt alone. Um, you know, what, what, what he was seeing was, was, was false. What, what, he, what he felt was based on a lie. He wasn't the only one left. But he still felt it was true. It felt to him like it was true. Um, and this expectation he had and, and the fact that what he expected didn't happen made him feel like a failure. And in the end, he even became disillusioned with himself. He said, I'm, I'm, no, I'm no different from my ancestors. <laughs> and you can see sort of his disappointment and his pride working together there because the implication was he only now realized he's no better than his ancestors. <laughs> Actually, all along, he thought he was. Maybe that was what was keeping him going. You know, I am what, what, what the other prophets of the Lord, what the other prophets of Yahweh in the past could not do. I'm going to do. I'm going to accomplish because I'm better than them. He didn't say it out loud, and we won't either. We won't either. But that seems to be what was living in his heart. And now he realizes, oops, I'm no better than my ancestors. And that's not hyperbole, you know. It's really true. You know? But the problem was that it was a revelation to him. And he became disillusioned with himself. So often when we're disappointed, it's because we have a higher estimate of ourselves than we ought to have. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And then become deeply disillusioned with ourselves. Deeply disillusioned. And all this made him vulnerable to Jezebel's uh, threat. I, I sometimes wonder, you know, if she wanted to kill him, why did she send a messenger and not an assassin? 
Anyway, you know, I, I can't really answer that question. I don't know. I don't know what was going on in um, in her mind. But but just look what's going on here at the, at the end of of this section. Elijah has given up his dream to reform Israel. That was his expectation. That was his dream. That's been shattered. He's given up on his dream to reform Israel. He's given up on his ministry. It says he went down to Beersheba and then he left his servant there. Now, if he were just a rich aristocrat, I mean, that that servant would just be a servant. But he wasn't a rich man. He was a prophet of Yahweh. That servant was his assistant. That was his ministry staff that he was letting go. He's saying, God, I'm done with the ministry. I don't want to be a prophet anymore. That was what he was saying. He's given up on his ministry. He's given up on his allies, guys like Obadiah, all kinds of other allies that he knows of, but he says, I'm the only one left. And he's given up on the people of God. He's given up on his people. He's given up on it completely. And finally, he's given up on his life. He says, I've had enough. God, I want to die. That's how disillusioned he is. And, and you can see the physical, the spiritual, the psychological, all working together to get him to that place where he's just ready to give up. Now, just two, two things there. Elijah is suicidal. And I'm sure there are some of you sitting here who either were or are right now feeling a bit suicidal. We're a big enough group in a city like Joburg for that to probably be true. Some of you have probably struggled with suicidal thoughts, just like Elijah. Maybe some of you are struggling with that now. Notice that even though Elijah wants to die, he doesn't presume presume to have the right to take his own life. He wants to die, but he says, Lord, you take my life. He doesn't presume he has the right to kill himself. You see, our lives are not ours to take because... We didn't create it. God created our lives. God gave us our lives. And only God has the right to take it. Okay? Um, so this is the, the problem. This, this is the, the, the pit that, that Elijah is in. Um, now, how we need grace like Elijah during the journey. So... Um, it's interesting, in the, in the, when he's in the desert, he says, God, I've had enough, I want to li- I, 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 I'm no better than my ancestors, I just want to die, take my life. And, and then, uh, God treats Elijah through his providence and through the angel that he sends, in a way that it actually reveals the wisdom and the tenderness of God. The grace of God. And how grace is so multifaceted. I mean, just notice, you know, what the angel does not say to Elijah. He doesn't come to Elijah and he says, um, have you claimed the promises? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you read the word? Have you prayed? Have you confessed all known sin? Have you ever, you know, <laughs> come through his list? Now, all of those things are good and right. But, but notice that God does not start there. You know, so often when someone is depressed and down and discouraged, we want to go through our little list of what needs to be done. And so often we just want to 
us as evangelical Christians just want to focus on the spiritual and completely ignore the psychological and the physical. But God's treatment of Elijah reveals that God is much more, I want to say, multidisciplinary than we are. He treats He created every aspect of Elijah, and therefore he knows how to treat every aspect of Elijah. He treats spirit, soul, and body. And I I just want to recommend, Hyundai is busy, is going to start um, very soon a a counseling, a lay counseling course. And one of the things that we try and do in that course is we try and treat people out of a biblical worldview, not just spiritually. Not just psychologically and not just physically, but all three together, spirit, soul, and body, all together. Because that's how God created us. You see, the way we treat people who are discouraged and depressed often reveals a lot about us and about our worldview. About what we think the world is like. What we think reality is like. Okay, and I want to submit to you, whether you are a Christian and have been a Christian for a while, or whether you're not a Christian and you're still sort of figuring things out and trying to consider, that the Christian worldview is the most complete, most accurate, and most powerful and helpful worldview that there is. Because it doesn't just focus on the spiritual or just on the psychological or just on the physical. It covers all three. See, the first thing, when the angel, the first thing is, Elijah lies down under the broom tree, which, by the way, God created. Okay, Nice in the shade, and he falls asleep. And sometimes that's what you need. You, know? you don't need like, a lot of counseling. It's not like, I mean, uh, it's, it, sometimes you just, you're just tired. You just haven't had enough sleep. You know, the kids have been keeping you awake every day for two weeks and you haven't slept properly and you just have sleep deprivation. You just need to lie in sometimes and sleep and rest. Maybe you need a a walk. You just need to go and walk along the sea or or read a good book or something and not, you know, something like how to get out of depression, but just a a good book, you know, maybe even fiction or something, you know, just to, to relax. Okay? Um, So... He lies down in the shade and he sleeps. And then the angel wakes him up. Notice the angel touches him. Sometimes you need just physical touch. Sometimes you just need a hug. Okay? Physical touch. And then the angel speaks to him. He says, arise, eat and drink. Here's the angel. And he's just been cooking for Elijah. Because sometimes you just... Fatigued and your blood sugar is low and, and, and you're hangry. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and that's why you're feeling so bad. So the first thing that God does is he gives him sleep and he gives him food and drink. He treats him physically. And by this time, he hasn't asked him, do you want to talk about it? He hasn't asked him even that. And he hasn't said, you know... You know, you must read scripture and claim the promises and, and, and confess all known sin and, and rebuke the devil and all that. He hasn't, treat, he hasn't done anything psychologically or spiritually, just physically. He's focused first on the physical. Um, and Elijah eats and drinks, and then he falls asleep again, and then he wakes up and he eats and drinks again. And then God moves on with him. Um, so, so often we need the physical, just the touch, just the sleep, just the, the drink. And, and, and we, sometimes we just need someone to talk to. And, and I mean, what, what, the, what the angel does there, 
And it's interesting. The first he's just mentioned as an angel. And the second time he's mentioned, he's mentioned as the angel of the Lord. That'll become important in a moment. Um, he, he just reflects, in a sense, how Elijah is feeling. He says to him, you're worn out. The journey is too much for you. So he's just, in a sense, reflecting what he's feeling. And, and that's just good counseling practice. You know, when, when you're talking to someone, just acknowledging how they're feeling. Just acknowledging where they're at. You know, just validating them psychologically. Yes, you are feeling this. You are down. You know, this is too much for you. You are overwhelmed. You know, um, so he, he treats him psychologically as well. But then he also treats him spiritually because he speaks to him. The angel of the Lord speaks to him, and clearly, when when the angel says this journey is too much for you, he's referring to the forty days journey to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, where Moses received the law. And had an encounter with God, a face-to-face encounter with God, and heard from the Lord. In, this, in, in that sense, he's saying, I'm sending you on a pilgrimage to the mountain of God, where it all started, where Israel became a nation. This covenant that you're saying Israel broke, that's where the covenant started, on Mount Sinai. I'm sending you back to the roots. It's interesting, in, in, in ancient times... There was this view, you know, many deities were, were, were sort of associated with mountains. Baal was associated with Mount Zephon, which is the mountain in the north, right in the north of Israel. And God was associated with the mountain of God, Horeb, or Sinai, which wasn't even in Israel or Judah. You know, it was way down in, 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 the, in the desert. Um, and it's, it's interesting, you know, um, God sends, it's, figuratively it's just beautiful how he sends him, Baal's mountain is in the north, but God sends him way south, back to Sinai, where Moses had this encounter. Why? Because Elijah needs an encounter. He needs the word of the Lord. He needs the presence of the Lord. And isn't that ultimately the the deepest thing that we need? The word of the Lord and the presence of the Lord. The physical, you know, there, there are so many people who will only treat the physical you know, that, because their worldview is a materialistic worldview. The, the material is all there is. You know, if you're feeling bad, just pop a pill. Because you're just actually um, a glorified chemical reaction. You know, just pop a pill and that's it. Nothing more. Now, sometimes using medication is good and right. There are other Christians, as, especially Christians like us, who will never pop a pill. <laughs> will only say, you know, just rebuke the devil, read the Bible, uh, pray, confess your sins, etc., we only want to treat it on a spiritual level. But God doesn't that e- do that either. And then there are other people who say, no, you know, you must just treat it psychologically. You know, your, your self-image has taken a knock, you know. Uh, you must feel better about yourself and, and, and your self-esteem must be built up, you know, and you're okay and, and so on. And, and, and that is, is also fine, but not if that's the only thing you do. And all of those three, if you just do one of the three, just focus on the physical or just on the psychological or just on the spiritual. It's all reductionistic. But the Christian worldview and the Christian God is the one who created, I almost want to say, a three-dimensional reality, spirit, soul, and body. And he treats us three-dimensionally. He doesn't, he's not reductionistic about how complex we are as human beings because he knows because he created us. And when he treats us, it's also nuanced and complex. Much more so than any other worldview I know of. Much more so than any other religion I know of. Can you see how the Christian religion is much closer to reality and much more powerful and practical 
because of that. Um, so just this, this holistic treatment. And, but notice how the treatment comes. Firstly, he's just, men- he's just mentioned as an angel, but then the second time he's mentioned, he's, he says that the angel of the Lord came a second time. Now, the angel of the Lord, I'm not going to try and prove this from Scripture now because I don't have time, but he's worshipped as the Lord, Yahweh. He's worshipped as God and he speaks as God because he is God. He's, he's both the messenger of God and he is God. Now, how can God send someone be the sender and the one who is sent. Well, obviously, as Christians, we understand it's if God is three persons in one God. That's the only way that makes sense. Okay? So the angel of the Lord, if you go and look carefully, you'll see is an, a pre-incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ coming before the incarnation in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. And coming as the Lord, as Yahweh, as God himself, and speaking as God himself. And he's the one that treats Elijah physically and psychologically and spiritually. And the grace of God comes through him. You see, the, the journey is too much for us too. And we need grace on our journey. And just like with Elijah, that grace comes through the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. But we have an advantage over Elijah because the angel of the Lord is not only with us. He is with us, but he's also in us. See, Jesus says at the end of Matthew's gospel, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's our commission, just like Elijah had a commission. Sometimes we're discouraged and we're tempted to give up our commission. But he says, go and make disciples of all nations, um, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The the angel of the Lord doesn't just come and visit us like he visited Elijah. He's always with us. But more than that, he's always in us through his spirit. He lives in us. And the grace of God can come to us uh, through him. Okay. Um, Thirdly, how, how to receive grace at the end of the journey. So Elijah doesn't really fully know God or himself. That's the problem here. The problem is, you know, the gospel, if I can just sort of break the gospel up into two well-known portions. The gospel says, number one, I am more guilty and wicked than I ever dared imagine, on the one hand, knowing myself, but I'm more loved and accepted than I ever dared hope. God's love, knowing God. So the gospel requires us to know ourselves as deeply sinful and, and, and broken and fallen, but also deeply loved because God loves us despite our weaknesses. And that's what Elijah didn't understand. That's what Elijah didn't understand. Just a few things I want to highlight there. Like I said, he goes to the mountain of, of God to, to hear from God and to experience God. Um, and he clearly wants to see judgment. You know, Elijah at one stage he says, when God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, just remember, when an all-knowing being asks you a question, it's not because he needs information. right? It's not, not, it's, it's not because he wants to know the answer. He doesn't know the answer. He knows the answer. He wants you to think about it. What are you doing here, Elijah? <laughs> Listen to Elijah's answer. He says, let me just actually read, read that to you. Um, 
He starts off by saying, I've been very zealous for the Lord. Sort of patting himself on the back as it were. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I am the only one left. I'm faithful because I'm zealous, I'm passionate, I'm committed. And now they are trying to kill me too. What's he insinuating here? He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord. In other words, I've been doing my bit, God. Where are you? (laughs) The fault's not with me. I've been very zealous. I've been very committed. I mean, look at at what I've accomplished. I mean, fire on the mountain, rain from heaven, outrunning the chariot, you know, three and a half years of drought announced before it came and then broken and announced before it was broken. I've been very zealous for the Lord. I've been... Can you see what he's saying? He's basically accusing God. God, I've been very zealous for you, but you have not. I've been doing my, my side of the bargain, but you, you somehow messed it up. He's disappointed in God. And then God comes along and he says, Elijah, come out. I'm, I'm about to give you a Moses experience. You know what Moses had? I'm about to pass by before you. Same words as what was used with Moses. And he says, and then he comes as the, the, the wind that breaks, that rips the rocks apart. Then he comes as the earthquake, then as the fire. And it, every time it says, but God wasn't in the, the earthquake, not in the wind, not in the fire. And then he comes as a, with the sound of a gentle whisper. And, and he knows what's going on in Elijah's heart. Elijah wanted judgment because it, it, it's actually amazing how God appears in this chapter. You know, there, I don't know of any other chapter where God appears in so many ways. Firstly, he appears as the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnation of Christ. And then he appears in the wind, then in the earthquake, then in the fire, and then in the gentle whisper. Such a multiplicity of ways. And the problem is that Elijah put God in a box. And God, Elijah, the, especially the wind, the fire, and the earthquake are when God appears as the divine warrior, as the judge. And that's how he wanted it, uh, um, God to appear. He says, everyone else has forsaken you. Come as the fire, as the earthquake, as the wind. Come and judge them. Come and destroy them. I want judgment, God. Where's your judgment? I've been zealous for you. I've been on fire for you. Where's your fire? I've been passionate for you. Shake things up a bit. Come and judge. But the problem is he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't understand that he himself deserves judgment. He says, I'm the only one left. That's a blatant lie. He knows. In the previous chapter, Obadiah told him how he hid a hundred prophets of the Lord in two different caves. He knows he's lying. Yet he repeated that lie three times. Once to Israel and twice to God. And then he accuses God. And, and, you, and you can see that, that, that self-importance and that self-pity also coming through there, that pride. And, and, and here's the problem. He thinks God has let him down. It's not his God that let him down. It's his plan that let him down. His God didn't fail, but his plan failed. How he planned for God to do what God wanted to do. He had it all figured out. This is how it's supposed to happen. And then it didn't happen that way. And he was... Deeply disappointed. And so often, but, but here's the thing, he associated his God with his plan. And when his plan failed, he thought his God had failed. Don't we so often do that? 
Don't we so often do that? We have this expectation, God must do it this way. He must make it work out this way. My life, this is how my life is supposed to go. We have this deep expectation, this perfect plan, and then for a while things go according to plan, and then the plan falls apart, and we think, but God, wasn't this your plan? No, actually, God says to us, like he says to Elijah, that was your plan. That was my plan. I have a different plan. I have a plan that you're going to anoint two kings and a successor called Elisha. That's my plan. That's how I'm going to continue to save Israel. But we associate our plan with our God, and then when our plan fails, we think our God has failed, and we're deeply disappointed because we put God in a box. Whenever you expect God to come as fire or wind or earthquake, he comes as a gentle whisper, or as the gentle angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. You can't put God in a box. He's not a tame God. You can't domesticate him. You can't control him. I can't. Elijah couldn't. And let's not impose our plan on God and think that our plan is God's plan. Be open to the fact that God sometimes is going to surprise you and work in ways that you don't expect. You see, the problem is when you expect everything to go according to your plan, then every setback is a double setback. Because, and, and, and especially if you think that plan is God's plan and not just your plan. Right? Because then every setback is just the normal disappointment of the failure or the, something going wrong. But then also the setback of thinking, but God has failed me. So it's a double blow. But if you are open to experiencing God, let God be God, you know, he makes the plan and we follow it. You know? Then when, when failure or setbacks come, you're still disappointed, but it's just a single disappointment. It's just the failure or the setback. You're not also disappointed in God because you think that his plan has failed. So it's usually that second blow that breaks us. Now, just in closing, um, I'm not going to even read the scripture. I think it's up there in, in Exodus 33, verse 22. Elijah wants judgment, but Elijah himself deserves judgment. So we, we often call for judgment. We call God fix things by judging everyone else, not realizing that we deserve judgment as much as everyone else. We're imperfect and sinful just like everyone else. But in how can you handle the judgment of God? Just imagine if Elijah had gone out of that cave and stood on the mountain while the wind was blowing that was ripping the rocks apart. It would have ripped Elijah apart. You see, we cannot handle the judgment of God. We need a cave to hide in. And the word the cave there, cave is a strong word. It's actually a more generic word. It could mean cave or hole or cleft. And notice what it says in, 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 in um, Exodus 33, Verse 22 it says, when, the when God's glory passed by, because it's exactly the same words that he said to, to Elijah, I'm, I'm going to pass by in front of you. This is with Moses. I, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by, and I will remove my hand and you can see my back, but my face you cannot see. The only way we can safely experience all of God, both his powerful judgment and his gentle mercy, is if we're in the cleft of the rock. And that rock, in fact, that, that cave that Elijah went to might have been exactly the same cleft that Moses was in, was put in when the Lord passed by in front of him. And that rock points to Christ. 
Jesus. Just go to the next slide. Beautiful, well-known hymn. It says, Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. Not the labor of my hands um, can fulfill thy Lord's thy Lord's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All could never sin erase. Thou must save and save by grace. Go to the next slide. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the, to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look. To thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when mine eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That's the grace that we need at the end of the journey. You know, if during the journey we need Christ in us, at the end of the journey we need us in Christ. Hiding in the rock that was cleft, that was split for us. That was broken for us. See, when Elijah was in that cave, the wind representing the, and the fire and the earthquake representing the judgment of God came and it buffeted that mountain. But it was the rock that was broken. And Elijah, that was saved. And we need that too. We need that too. See, if we understand the gospel, that we're more guilty and wicked than we dare imagine, and yet more loved and accepted than we dare hope, then on the one hand, we'll never be as surprised and disappointed as Elijah was at people's sinfulness and hard-heartedness, and at our own when we see it. You know, when we see ourselves as being no better than our ancestors, we won't want to commit suicide because we sort of expect that. Because we, we understand the gospel. We're more guilty and even wicked than we dare imagine. But we'll also not be frustrated at God's patience and his gentleness and his long-suffering with other people and with us. Because he loves us and accepts us more than we realize. See, Christians are not people who have stopped being sinners. Any Christians here who has stopped being a sinner? <laughs> okay, I must put down my hand. I haven't. <laughs> Martin Luther had the revelation. He said it in, in, in Latin. He said, Sumul justus um, et peccator. Sumul justus et peccator. Sumul simultaneously justus just et and peccator. Sinner. Simultaneously just and a Sinner. That's what, a sinner, that's what a Christian is. Someone who is at the very same moment both justified and a sinner. One day God will complete our salvation and we will no longer be sinners. We will not only be saved from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin. But for now we must understand the gospel. Otherwise we will be constantly disappointed at ourselves and others and constantly frustrated at God. For the gentle, patient way in which he saves. Just close your eyes. Some of you, the journey is too much for you. And you need God's multidisciplinary, multidimensional grace. And if that's you, 
this morning and, and, and you need just assistance and you need God to minister to you, I, I want to invite you to just come forward, whatever it may be. Whatever's too much for you. Just, I, I just want you to come forward and, and come stand in front, bring your Bible, bring your handbag or whatever it is. We'll pray with you, we'll hug you, we'll do whatever we can do. If you need food, we'll try and help you with that too. But come forward and bring your need to the Lord. Just bring your need to the Lord. Um, and, you know, if like Elijah, you have certain misconceptions about yourself and about God, I just want you to bring them to God right now. So just close your eyes. Just close your eyes. And just bring any misconceptions that the Lord has highlighted in your heart about Him and about yourself. Just bring it to Him and say, God, let your truth set me free. Father, we just, Lord, admit, Lord, that we are more needy and more broken than we, Lord, than we are even able to admit or understand. And yet you are greater and more gracious and more loving than we are capable of realizing. And we just thank you for that. Please settle that in our hearts in Jesus' name. Lord, I just want to pray your blessing over every person here this morning. I pray that they will experience your presence as they go. And that they'll experience you leading them deeper and deeper into the great and majestic mystery which is you. The God who is. The God who lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jobberg.com